Today we're going to look at the book of Job. Uh, Job is one of the wisdom books of the Bible. Wisdom literature focuses on how to live life well. And sometimes wisdom literature is filled with these short sort of pithy sayings we like to call Proverbs, like you might find in the book of Proverbs. Okay, There's another book of wisdom in the Bible called Ecclesiastes. These are sort of longer sayings, poems, reflections. But sometimes wisdom literature comes in the form of a narrative, of a story. And so Job is our, our example of that in the Bible. So we're going we're to walk through this book of Job. Now, Job is 42 chapters, so I'm not going to read them all, right? I'm going to just read a couple little pieces as we go through here. And uh, um, it, it, I gave you in your bulletin a little just outline of Job so you can kind of follow along with the story. But that's what we're going to do. We're going to try to get the big picture story of the book of Job. Now, the story begins with a man named Job. Job is blameless and upright. He fears God and turns away from evil. He has seven sons, three daughters. He's also wealthy. He has lots of sheep and camels and oxen and donkeys. He's called the greatest of all the men in the East. So, I'm going to pick up the story and read the beginning here of Job. Job 1, starting in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and the Satan was also came among them. And the Lord said to the Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? He, you have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So, so God has a meeting, right? And the angels all are invited. It's kind of a board meeting, and they have to kind of report on what they've been up to. And uh, the text says Satan is there, but, but at this period, they really aren't talking about Satan as a figure, as like a person, as a fallen angel. It's really the Satan, uh, which just means the accuser. And so there's this figure in there, the accuser. Satan hears God talking about how great Job is, and he questions God on this. So basically, hey, of course Job is happy and never curses you. You give him everything, right? He's blessed. He's never had a tough day in his life. You've blessed everything that he does. If you would actually harm Job, then, then he would curse you to your face. So God gives the accuser the permission to go after Job, although he says you cannot touch Job directly. At at the same time, then, one after another, four messengers come to tell Job that disasters have happened. Either they've been attacked or natural disasters have happened, and uh, all his sheep are dead, all his oxen are dead, all his camels are dead. And then finally, somebody comes and says, a great wind kind of appropriate on today. A great wind came and blew down your house and your children were inside and all of your children are dead. Job loses everything. But still Job doesn't curse God. 
So a little while later, there's another board meeting. And all the sons of God are there, and they're reporting back. And uh, God's like, hey, did you see Job, y'all? Did you see my servant Job? He, he considered him. He, he, is not, he hasn't cursed me. And it's, Satan says, you know, skin for skin. Like, if he actually, you would let me hurt him, then he would actually curse you to your face. So God gives permission for Satan to do just that. And Satan starts to attack Job's flesh. Job is cursed with terrible sores. The text says sores from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet. And so what he would do is he would sit in ashes to try to soothe them. And he would scrape the sores with a piece of broken pottery just trying to find some kind of relief. Job has these three friends that come to see him to comfort him. None of them are Israelite. Job doesn't seem to be Israelite either. When they come to see him, they, they can't even recognize him from a distance. It's not till close up and they have to kind of squint and they, oh, it's Job. And what follows then is 35 chapters of speeches. 35 chapters of a discussion between these three friends and Job and then a fourth friend that sort of comes at the end. And each friend tries to give Job comfort. First Job makes a speech and then each friend sort of in turn starts making speeches to which Job responds. This is some of the most beautiful poetry in, uh, in the history of the world. It's really tightly organized too. If you look on that outline in the bulletin, there are cycles. So what happens is, uh, a friend says something and then Job responds. A fr another friend says something and Job responds. The third friend says something and Job responds. And then we start the cycle over again and they go back and forth. And, and so for 35 chapters, they basically are talking about what we all talk about when it comes to pain and suffering. Why? Was it something I did? Is God trying to teach me? Is God trying to punish me? Remember, you as the reader know about this meeting, this board meeting that happened in heaven. But Job doesn't know. Job doesn't know why this is happening. He just is stuck with all of this tragedy and all of this pain more than we can possibly imagine. So Job's friends think, Job, you must have done something wrong. You must have really ticked off God for this to happen. And so they, a lot of the speeches have to do with, well, what did you do that made God so mad? And Job, Job insists. He just keeps coming back. No, I didn't do anything. No, I've been upright. And they kind of say, well, Job, come on. Like, everybody's a sinner. Like, everybody does wrong things. Maybe just because humanity did something wrong, you're part of humanity, you get punished. And Job keeps saying, no, I did not do anything to deserve this. And remember, we know, yeah, we're all sinners. And Job was a sinner too. But we also know that Job didn't do anything. It actually wasn't anything that Job did. And then the, the arguments keep going. And, and it's like... You know, it's hard to summarize 35 chapters. You've got to read them for yourself. But part of the question is, well, is God good? Is God powerful? Does God really care? I mean, they run the gambit of all these questions. And the whole time, you know what Job doesn't do? He doesn't curse God. He doesn't ever curse God to his face. He doesn't ever complain. But what, but he, what he does do is he complains about the whole situation. And, and he asks God for two things. These are the same two things that we all ask when we go through suffering. For an explanation and a vindication. Explain why it happened, God. And vindicate me. Because all these other people, my, even my closest friends are saying that it's me. It's something I did. But it's not something I did. Come defend me, God. And so while Job doesn't, doesn't curse God to his face, 
eh, he gets kind of close. He's flirting with a line of, of really questioning God. For 35 chapters, for all these cycles, they keep going. But, but they never make any kind of headway. They, they just kind of keep going with the conversation. Finally, a, a fourth friend comes in to try to settle it. He doesn't really add anything to the conversation. So finally, God steps in. The text says God shows up in a violent storm or a whirlwind. That would break up the party, right? All of a sudden, bam, there's a whirlwind and it starts talking to you. And God gives several chapters of explanation to Job. Well, in fact, as you'll see, not really explanations. And I want to read some of it, but, but it's, it's, it's supposed to be flowing. It's supposed to be kind of funny. And uh, to help capture that, I'm going to actually read from what's called the message. The message, if you're not familiar, is, a, is not a translation. It's a paraphrase. So it, it just takes some of the ideas of the Hebrew or the Greek and sort of makes them in modern, but it flows and it catches some of the... I think sarcasm that's meant to go in here. Anyway, I'm going to read it from the message, Job 38. And now finally God answered Job from the eye of a violent storm. He said, why do you confuse the issue? Why do you talk without knowing what you're talking about? Pull yourself together, Job, up on your feet, stand tall. Now I actually think the message missed this because in the Hebrew what it says is, Job, put on your clothes like a man. In other words, if I was writing the message, I probably would have write, Job, Put on your big boy pants. I'm about to tell you what's up. Okay? Put on your big boy pants because here I go. And then God goes into it. And I'm, I'm not reading all of it. I'm just reading some pieces. But here you go. I have some questions for you. And I want some straight answers. Where were you when I created the earth? Tell me since you know so much. Who decided on its size? Certainly you know that. Who came up with the blueprints, the measurements? How was its foundation poured? Who set its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang in, in the chorus and all the angels shouted praise. And who took charge of the ocean when it gushed forth like a baby from the womb? That was me. I wrapped it in soft clouds. I tucked it in safely at night. Have you ever ordered the morning get up and told the dawn get to work? Have you ever gotten to the true bottom of things? Explored the labyrinth ca caverns of the deep ocean? Do you know the first thing about death? Do you have one clue regarding dark mysteries? Do you have any idea how large the earth is? Speak up if you even have the beginning of an answer. Have you traveled to where the snow is made? Seen the vault where hail is stockpiled? The arsenals of hail and snow where I keep in readiness for times of trouble and battle and war. Can you find your way to where the lightning is launched? Or the place where the wind, from which the wind blows? You don't have a, a minute image these marbles of weather just happened, do you? do you? Do you know the first thing about the sky's constellations and how they affect things? Can you get the attention of the clouds and commission a shower of rain? Can you take charge of lightning bolts and have them report to you for orders? He goes on and on talking about nature and storms and lions and mountain goats and donkeys and wild buffalo, ostriches, hawks, eagles. Finally, he says to Job, Now what do you have to say for yourself? Are you going to haul me, the mighty one, into court and press charges? Here's Job's answer. I'm speechless. And all words fail me. I should never have opened my mouth. I talk too much, way too much. I'm ready to shut up and listen. Then God kept going. God answered Job next from the eye of the storm. This is what he said. 
I have some more questions for you, and I want straight answers. Don't presume to tell me what I'm doing wrong. Are you calling me a sinner so you can be a saint? Do you have an arm like my arm? Can you shout in the thunder the way I can? Go ahead, show your stuff. Let me see what you're made of, what you can do. Unleash your outrage, target the arrogant, and lay them flat. I mean, God just keeps going and going using more and more imagery. And then he he uses these two images of these giant creatures. One is a behemoth, and one is a leviathan. There's a lot of debate about these. Some people try to say it's a hippo and a crocodile. I think they tend to be like a mythical creature with the size and attributes that they say. And God's saying, can you even understand these animals, let alone take them in, let alone care for them? And I love how the message puts this. Uh, The Hebrew actually is talking about the behemoth and putting a nose in its ring and being able to, like, uh, domesticate. Can you even possibly domesticate it? But here's how the message says this. But you'd never want a behemoth for a pet. You'd never even be able to housebreak him. I love that image of housebreaking a behemoth. This giant hippo or giant creature, we're trying to housebreak a puppy right now, is not easy. But a behemoth? Like from now on, the new title of this sermon is Housebreaking the Behemoth. That's what we're going to call this thing from now on. What's he saying? Job, I am so much bigger than you are. I am so much grander than you are. If I could even explain to you why things happen, you couldn't even begin to fathom them. Like, not only do I not owe you an answer, but if I gave you an answer, you wouldn't get it anyway. You want, you want explanation? You want vindication? You couldn't possibly understand it if I gave it to you. So Job answered, I'm convinced. You can do anything and everything. Nothing and no one can upset your plans. I admit it. I was the one. I babbled on about things far beyond me, made small talk and wonders way over my head. I admit I once lived by rumors of you. Now I have it all firsthand from my eyes and ears, from my own eyes and ears. I'm sorry, forgive me. I'll never do that again, I promise. I'll never again live on crusts of hearsay, crumbs of rumor. So Job confesses that he could not possibly understand or begin to fathom God. It was wrong to not trust in God. And now that he's experienced God's power in a personal way, seen it for himself, heard it with his eyes, he's like, okay, I yield. Or as he said earlier, I'm just going to shut up and listen now. So God ends up rebuking Job's friends for being bad friends, although he spares them punishment on Job's account and begins to, to actually restore Job's fortune, fortunes. He has more wealth than he ever did, has more children. So what are we to do with this strange story? After all, this is wisdom literature supposed to tell us how to live. How does it tell us how to live a good life? One option might be to focus on the long-suffering and patience of Job. Have you ever heard that phrase? You have the patience of Job. Here's the problem with that interpretation. I, actually, James 5 uh, talks about Job's patience. The problem is, I don't think Job was that patient. Okay, He didn't curse God, but he had a lot of questions for God. A lot of back and forth with God at the beginning. So I'm not sure that it's about the patience of Job, really. Though there's something to be said there. Another option might be to reflect on the meaning of suffering and why suffering happens. After all, that's what a lot of the discussion is about. Why do bad things happen? And and if Job is good, why do bad things happen 
to good people. Why is it that, that good people have bad things happen, and we all know bad people that have great things happen? Like, why is the universe built the way it is? The problem with that is, think about the story. You and I know why. There was a board meeting. And like a bet. Is that the meaning? Can you imagine if that was part of my pastoral care? Somebody came into my office, Jordan. I am just so upset. This is terrible. I don't even know why. Why is God doing this to me? And I said, well, I have kind of an idea. See, there was a board meeting up in heaven, and your name came up. I think we all know how this happened, right? That's not the point of the book. That's absurd. In fact, the whole book is absurd. It's absurd to think that that we could have lightning report to us for duty or understand how the world was made or housebreak a behemoth. Everybody listen. The absurdity is the point of the book of Job. If Job believes God is so big and powerful that he can question him as to why things happen, then at the same time, God is big enough that even if he could answer, if he would answer, we couldn't possibly understand it. You can't have it both ways. You can't have a God you can be mad at and a God that has to answer to you. You can't have a God that you can be upset with and also have a God who, who has to explain it to your piddly little brain. Okay, It would be like a five-year-old watching brain surgery and starting to ask questions. A five-year-old going, hey, why are you doing that? And then the five-year-old begins to make suggestions to the surgeon. Hey, why don't you use a different kind of saw? No. You tell the five-year-old to sit there and be quiet. I can't even begin to tell you the science that goes in to brain surgery. It's even more like that with God. Okay, it's even more like that with God. The real wisdom of Job is that we cannot understand why things happen. What we need to do is simply trust God. Or as the message put it so bluntly, sometimes we need to shut up and listen. Sometimes we need to close our mouth and let God be God and realize that we are not God and that there's actually a freedom in that. That God may never give you the explanation of why you went through something. He may never vindicate you to let you know it wasn't because of you. I take that burden off your shoulders now. God is not going to explain to you why things happen. He never does. And if he did, you couldn't understand him anyway. The peace that you can find, the wisdom of Job is, okay, God, you're God, I'm not. That's the way it is. That's the way it always was. And I have fooled myself into thinking it could be any other way. I'm sorry. I'm going to shut up now and let you be God. Now, that doesn't mean, I think, that you can't question God. Part of what's modeled here is that Job can bring his request to God. God is so big that he is not scared of your questions. It's not like like you're going to go up to God one day. After something bad happens, you're going to be like, God, what about this? And and God's going to be like, no. No, they asked it. They finally asked the one question I can't. No. If God is that big, if God is that big, he's not scared of your questions. I don't think you have to be scared of your questions. I think part of the permission of Job is go ahead and ask God what you want to ask. Curse God. Okay? Have such an honest honest prayer life with God that sometimes a little four-letter word slips in there. Bring it on. I think God is big enough to handle your four little words. If God can tell the thunder where to go, 
he, he can handle your, your cursing. He can handle where you're upset. The point is not to, to hold back on those things, but just to realize that even if God could answer you, you couldn't understand it anyway. That in the end, peace comes from trust. Maybe part of the other lesson of Job is uh, be careful who your friends are. Be careful what voices you're listening to when you're going through pain and when you're going through suffering. If you surround yourself by people that want to explain it away, then you're going to be stuck in that mode of, i got to explain this, i got to explain this, i got to find meaning in this. Get good friends that will just sit with you. Some of the best friends are the friends that will just sit with you and not have to explain it, but just sit in the ash and in the dust with you. Finally, I think we can trust in the God's goodness in a way that Job could not because we have Jesus. And there's a couple times where Jesus is really foreshadowed in the book of Job. In Job 19.25, Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And then there's this great line in Job 40, in this middle of this rant that God gives to Job, where God says, Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be made right? In other words, Job, are you going to try to condemn me so that you can feel better about yourself? But of course, the message of Jesus is yes. Jesus was condemned so that we could be made right. Jesus was the ultimate inner sufferer, innocent sufferer, the ultimate Job. So the next time you suffer, and you know you didn't deserve it. Remember that Jesus suffered for you and he didn't deserve it. Talk straight with God. Be careful of the voices that you listen to. And remember that real peace in your suffering comes when you put your hand over your mouth and you just trust. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.